Anyway, over the past uh, few months, I have had uh, the opportunity, I guess that's a good way to put it, or at least I've been asked to get involved in several situations that are relevant for our topic for today. All of them are different to some degree, and yet all of them have a common theme that relates to what we'll be discussing. In one form or another, every one of these situations involves sexual misconduct. One case says a husband's ongoing affair has led to his decision to divorce his wife. In another situation, there are two couples, which was interesting, there are two couples who are separated. I got a call from each one of the respective spouses. In one case, the one husband who's separated wants to date other women during their separation. And in the other case, it's the wife who wants to date other men during their separation. And uh, dating involves physical intimacy with other people. Another case that we're involved in right now is a husband that considers being with other women sexually his business and would hope that his wife would leave him alone and get off his case. There's another situation where a couple whose son and daughter, whose son in this particular case is living and having sex with his girlfriend. The other situation is the couple's daughter is living and having sex with her boyfriend. A daughter who is away at school, openly having sex with her boyfriend, living together in their dormitory, and wants their parents, wants her parents to accept this situation and to just kind of get used to it. Another case, the son is openly homosexual, wants to bring his lover to dinner and to other family functions, and wants the family to accept that. Several other situations that we're involved in involve people that have had extramarital affairs and uh, the so-called innocent person is having a real difficult time, if not an impossible time, trying to forgive and forget what had happened in their relationship. And then another situation involves a family member who it just was uh, revealed had been sexually molesting one of his children. The interesting thing about all of these is that in every situation that I mentioned, the people who are involved are all Christians. At some point in their life or another, and what I mean by that simply is this, at some point or another in their life, the people that are involved in all of these situations have asked Jesus Christ to come into their life, to forgive them of their sins, believe what God says about Christ, that he is the only way to get to heaven, that he is the only way to get to the Father, that they have been forgiven of their sin and that they've received him as Lord and Savior. So every one of these people are aware of what's involved. And yet there's one haunting question that continues to come back. In every one of these situations, the question was the same. And that is that how do I, in some cases, and in other cases, how do we confront this type of sexual misconduct? What do we do and what do we say? And it's a very relevant question. And unfortunately, many of us will have to deal with this issue over the course of a lifetime. And uh, as difficult as it is, fortunately, God has some wonderful insight as to how we deal with this in a way that's appropriate, and in a way also that'll have some, in some cases, some very positive responses. And uh, so we need to recognize that the last time we got together, we discussed specifically, how do you confront a person that's not a Christian about wrong activity? Well, the bottom line is you use the wrong activity to help them to see and to understand that they need to be forgiven, they need to come into a right relationship with God, that they need to accept and believe that Jesus Christ is the only way that that can happen. So we dealt with all of that the last time we are together. Specifically in this particular session, what I want to do is deal with Christians who are living in a situation that God would call a wrong way of living, a wrong lifestyle, a wrong behavior, and to deal with it in that particular manner. So we're going to take a look at confronting sexual misconduct, but specifically uh, addressing the idea that we know or we will know or we may even ourselves be in situations where we're doing things that are wrong before God and we need to recognize and understand it. The first thing that we looked at was we need to recognize that these five principles to apply, we need to recognize our own weaknesses. If you've got your Bibles, look at Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. It's critical if we're going to discuss such a sensitive subject with anyone that we need to recognize an important principle and that is we need to recognize our own weaknesses 
some of us are not very tolerant people when it comes to the inappropriate behavior of others around us. Somehow we believe that we're above it, we could never be found guilty of it, it could never happen to us. And as I've discussed all throughout this marriage series and all throughout every series that I've ever done, when you believe that it could never happen to you, then guess what? One day it will because pride always comes before the fall. And there's a matter of sensitivity of heart that needs to take place if you're going to confront anyone in any one of these situations. You go back through the list that I just gave you. How do you confront a person that's having sex with someone other than their spouse? How do you confront a single person that's having sex outside of marriage? How do you confront a homosexual person? How do you confront, you know, all of these situations? How do you do it? We need to recognize, first of all, before we even go and discuss this with them, our own weaknesses. Galatians 6.1, we read this. And he's talking about brethren, and I think it's important. He's saying, hey, brother... You know, a fellow Christian, hey, another child of God, another person has put their faith and trust in Christ. Listen, brethren, if any, if, if, if even if a man is caught in any trespass, which would include any of the things we're discussing, obviously, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one of you looking to yourself, lest you too, lest you not be tempted. He's saying, those of you who are spiritual, you know what's interesting is that there's two perspectives or two ways of looking at things in life. There's one of looking at things in life from God's point of view, which is a spiritual way of seeing things. And there's another way of looking at life, and that's through our own vantage point or our own perspective. The Bible would call it through our flesh or whatever you want to define it. But I always like to put it this way. There's one way of seeing things, and that's through my own mind and my own eyes. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is always destruction. Or there's a way of looking at things from God's point of view. And everything that we come in contact with in life, there's those two point of views that we need to discuss. A person who is living in a manner that's displeasing to God is obviously looking at that situation through their own eyes. What am I benefiting from it? What is it getting me? Is it making me happy? Is it pleasing me or a need in my life? It's me, 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 I, 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 I. And that selfishness always is a tip that we're looking at it from a perspective other than God's. Those of us who are spiritual in this case would be those who are not caught up in the middle of all of that. We can see God's perspective from it very clearly those who are spiritual have an obligation to confront those who at that particular point in their life are confused by their activity and were to do so in a spirit of gentleness. Not in anger, not in vindictiveness, not out of spite or hate or resentment or anything like that, but gentleness and meekness. It's the opposite of wanting to get revenge for what that person's doing. Because I'll guarantee you that in every situation that I talked about, there are hurts that are spread out all throughout. It's just not the people who are intimately involved, it's friends, it's family, it's people that are around the situation that are oftentimes hurt by some of those things that take place. And he's saying if you're going to go and confront them, to do it and recognize your own weakness. Recognize that you could just be, but by the grace of God, in the same situation that they're in, but fortunately at this particular point in time, you are not, and you can see clearly what they're involved in, and you need to help them to understand it. See, that spirit of gentleness will open a door to conversation. And that's really what you want to be able to do. You want to be able to get in to discuss things with them. Because if you can just get in to discuss some things with them, you'll be able to help them to see what's really going on. And, and, a, and a critical and judgmental spirit, I'll guarantee you right now, is going to shut the door and end all dialogue. We need to recognize this because what we're trying to do is we're trying to get involved with their life to the point that we can help them to realize the damage that sexual misconduct causes in their life. We're trying to help point out to them that, hey, there's some damage that's going to occur if you don't stop doing what you're doing. And we can see it, but you can't because you're in the middle of it. It's kind of like an intervention is really what it comes down to, a spiritual intervention. Those who have gone through it with alcoholic parents or alcoholic uh, family member or somebody that's addicted to drugs or whatever knows exactly what I'm talking about because that person's tied up in the middle of it and drugs and alcohol is controlling their behavior. They can't see they've got a problem, but the people around them that aren't involved can see very clearly what the problem is. So what God is saying here is we're, we're having a spiritual intervention. We're coming into their life with a spirit of gentleness to help them and to urge, with the, urge them and to plead with them to understand the damage that's going to take place in their life if they keep going in the same direction. And that's why we're talking about, and, and there's four things that basically will take place. Number one, if you've got your Bibles open again, flip over to uh, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. And I, and I like the way that this is put because what really we're seeing here is that there's emotional damage that comes with, with sexual misconduct.
1 Peter chapter 2, listen to these words. He says, Beloved, again, talking about another fellow Christian, Beloved, I urge you. The word is, I, I, I beg you. I'm, I'm pleading with you. I'm not, I'm not here to judge you. I'm not here to be critical of you. I'm not here to condemn you. What I'm here to do is I'm here to beg you and to plead with you and to urge you to please listen to what I'm, I, I have to say. You can't see it, but we can see it. And I love you and I care for you and I want you to understand it. I urge you, I beg you, to please listen. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, Romans 12, 1 and 2, the same word. I urge you, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. I urge you, I plead with you, I beg with you, as, as, a, as aliens and strangers, to abstain from what? Fleshly lusts, which wage war against your soul. It's an emotional destruction that takes place. I mentioned to you the last time we were together about the man who was at the conference and said, boy, you know what, it's a beautiful place and I'm really enjoying the weekend, but I, I, I regret going home. I, I fear going home because I'm going to be grilled by my wife on where was I and who was I with and, and what did I eat and where did I go and, and who could she call and confirm that with. And he's the guy that said, well, the reason she's so suspicious of me is because that's where I met her at a conference like this when I was married to my first wife. And the suspicion is there and the doubt is there. Can I ever trust you again? See, in a relationship that, that, that involves sexual intimacy in marriage, there's, a, there's, an a, there's an element of trust that can't be violated. And he's saying, I urge you to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. There's an emotional damage that takes place. Single people that have sex outside of marriage that take that emotional damage with them into a new relationship, and it, and it inhibits intimacy. There's no joy of discovery in that relationship because they've already violated that outside of it. And there's guilt and there, there's all those feelings that go with it. And God's saying, man, there's emotional damage and we need to recognize that. We need to be, be you know, aware of that. And uh, Stephen Covey, in an article called the, the Executive Excellence, was writing in response to the man that said, you know what, my wife doesn't trust me because it was on a trip like this that I met her. And, uh, and I left my first wife. And he said this, he goes, boy, you know what, when he said that, he said, you're really into a quick fix, aren't you? And he looked at him and said, what are you talking about? He goes, well, you want everything to just be fixed just like that. You want everything to be better all of a sudden. He said, well, what do you mean? He goes, and here's his comment, and I want you to take heart, of, take heart to this and to jot it down. He said, my friend, you cannot talk yourself out of a problem that you behaved yourself into. I like that. Talk is cheap. You cannot talk yourself out of a problem that you behaved yourself into. If you've ever had a relationship with another person that has violated your trust, the easiest thing to say is, oh, mom and dad, that'll never happen again. Oh, honey, that'll never happen again. Oh, sir, that won't happen again. Oh, coach, that won't happen again. Hey, talk is cheap. The only way you can get out of situations you behave yourself into is to behave yourself out of them. And what he's saying is we need to set up and deposit an emotional bank account that says, hey, listen, you want your wife to trust you again? Then you set up an emotional bank account and you deposit into that bank account on a regular basis trust and confidence and accountability. You allow her to question you. You allow him to question you. You allow them to check up on you. You allow them to call your friends as a, as, a, as a young person. Hey, you know what? You allow your folks to check with your teachers, to check with your friends, to check with people that know you. And you're not even concerned about it because you're trying to behave yourself out of something that you behaved yourself into. And as a spouse, you do the same thing. Hey, you know what? I violated your trust and confidence, but, but I'm going to behave myself out of that situation. I'm going to be trustworthy. You're going to have confidence in me. I am going to be accountable. And I'm going to do it over a long period of time. And it's not going to just go away because, oh, you know what? I want it to be better tomorrow. I hurt you deeply. I talk to athletes all the time and say, listen to me. The deeper the wound, the longer the period of healing. If you have a deep knee injury, it's not going to go away in a week or two weeks or three weeks. If you have knee surgery, it's going to take you six months or eight months or 12 months to rehabilitate that knee to get it back to where it was before. And oftentimes it's even stronger than it was before. But the point is it took a long period of time. If you violated trust in your relationship, listen to me and listen to me carefully. It's going to take a long period of time, but that's okay because you got nothing but time on your hands anyway. If you're committed to a relationship for the rest of your life, you got plenty of time to deal with it. 
And listen, the moment you violate that trust again, and you spend six months depositing into that account, it only takes one withdrawal to empty the bank account where you got to start all over again. Isn't that true? Think about it, man. You can save money over a long period of time. I'm saving a little bit every month. Oh, we're saving for the Christmas club or whatever. A little bit all year long, man. All it takes is just one Christmas club withdrawal at the end of the year to wipe out that bank account. And you've got to start all over again. And that's the way it is in our relationships. We need to recognize that. Carl Avery says this, Although trust in a partner means different things to different people, dependability, loyalty, honesty, fidelity, its essence is emotional safety. When feelings of love or sexual excitement, while feelings of love or sexual excitement may wax and wane over time, ideally trust is a constant. When you have trust, you have it all. Wow. See, God says, abstain from fleshly lust because they wage war with your soul. There's emotional damage. We talked in great detail the last time we were together about physical disease, physical defilements. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says to flee sexual misconduct because every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral person sins against his own body. There's a threat of physical disease. There's a threat of, uh, the threat of physical defilement, a loss of, of, of vitality in your sexual relationship. Those who have had multiple sexual partners can attest to the fact that, you know what, it takes more and more and more to try to get the same feeling that you once had that you no longer have anymore, and it becomes almost an addiction. And you can't get enough, and it's just not there. The vitality is gone. The intimacy is gone. The trust is gone, and it destroys the foundation of, of, of the relationship. The emotional aspect is so tied to the physical that you can't have one without the other. And so we need to recognize what God is saying is that, you know, emotional response is closely related. One of the things that, that, I, that I want to bring out that I didn't discuss the last time is that, you know, in our world today, we often hear so much about the threat of physical disease. We hear about HIV virus. We hear about venereal diseases. We hear about the threat of AIDS. We hear about all of these things, and rightfully, rightfully so, because they're a consequence of our actions. But there's one thing that you don't hear much about anymore. And you know what that is? That's the fear of God. Don't hear anything about the fear of God anymore. All you hear about is the fear of catching some type of socially transmitted disease. You don't hear about anything. You don't hear much about fearing God so that it changes our behavior. But we hear about how we can somehow or another continue in our behavior and try to somehow or another change the consequences. And so we come up with safe sex messages that are, that are erroneous and are, and are destructive. Because you can tell kids all day long and other people that are single, and you can say, hey, be careful and wear a condom and watch this and that and take blood tests and do all this kind of stuff. But you can't fit a condom over your emotions. You can't take a pill for uh, you know, the destruction of, of uh, the feeling and sense of intimacy and the joy of discovery within marriage. You, none of that will ever go away. We need to recognize it's the fear of God that changes our behavior. It's a fear of God that changes us from doing wrong things. We need to discuss that a little more, maybe a lot more, and discuss the consequences a lot less. Instead of wearing little AIDS ribbons at everything that's, that Hollywood does, why don't we wear a fear God ribbon or button? See, it'll change the way that we see things. It'll change everything that's going on. The third thing is there's also the threat of marital difficulties. If you're a single person having sex outside of marriage, it, there's difficulties that will occur when you do get married and find that person. You won't be sure whether that's the right person or the wrong person because you violated that, and you don't really even know what you have in common with one another because everything revolves around sex. You don't know what you have in common. You don't know the direction that you're going. You don't know what each other's goals are, but it's too late now because you've already gotten involved with each other physically, and, man, that's enough to attract you. And all of a sudden you wake up one day and go, man, you know what? There's more to marriage than just having sex. There's a whole bunch more. Some of you are thinking, it's everything else but. And so, you know, we're trying to get that a little, we're trying to get that scale a little more balanced for you. But that's kind of the way it goes. And so we need to recognize that there's marital difficulties. Proverbs 6, 33 and 35 says, Wounds and disgrace he will find. His reproach will not be blotted out. For jealousy enrages a man, and he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not accept any ransom, nor will he be content, though you give many gifts. 
Man, I've talked to people who are just so angry and upset at their spouse or someone that violated their trust by having sex with their, with their mate. It just, you know, it's like, hey, you can't give me anything to make that better. You can't give me anything to make that right. God is saying that there's difficulties that go along with that. And we've already talked about the trust aspect of it. Fourth damage that occurs, and one that is important to understand, is that there's spiritual defeat that takes place. You know, one of the most devastating results of sexual immorality or misconduct is, is spiritual defeat. I have a pastor friend that was guilty of sexual immorality and it destroyed his ministry for a long period of time. And there's, what can you do and what can you say? There's spiritual defeat. You know, and, and, and I want to say something that I think is important. Because God is not mocked by any of us. And he will expose those dark areas of our life. Because he doesn't want a messenger standing before people proclaiming the truth of what he has to say, only to have them mock it by their own personal behavior. One of the most frightening things in the world for me to do is to stand here and to teach and to preach on what's right. And to know that maybe in an area of my life, though what I'm saying is true, maybe I'm not applying it like I should. That scares me to death. Because I know God's not mocked by that. That he'll expose that. And rightfully so. I'm glad he exposes that. I'm glad he exposes the Jim Bakers and the Jimmy Swaggerts and the other people that fall into areas of misconduct in their life. I'm glad that he exposes it because what he's telling the world is, hey, you know what? I don't have a double standard. What's truth is truth. What's right is right. And I'm not cutting my people a break at the expense of my word and my message. And I'm going to expose it for all the world to see it. Because God will raise someone else up with the same message of truth. And he'll give somebody else to take that person's place. God's not limited by any one of us. God doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need anyone. He allows us the privilege of doing what we're doing by gifting us as he gifts us. And we need to recognize and understand that. Spiritual defeat takes place when we violate any area of God's word in our life. It's important that we recognize that. There are many people who are single that are having sex outside of marriage and they're spiritually defeated because they know what's going on in their life and they cannot be used by God with the gifts that God's given them until they clean up in that area of life. We need to recognize that. We need to understand it. Listen to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. 2 Timothy 2, and I like the way that it's put. 2 Timothy 2, 19 through 22, if you want to look at it. It says this, Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands. Having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. Now, in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and earthenware, and some to honor and some dishonor. And I like that. What God is saying is, you know what? In God's house, there are people that God can use that will bring him honor, and there are people that God cannot use right now because they would bring him dishonor. And I don't know what category you fall into, but in a big house, there's a whole bunch of different people that live in it. And he's saying that some of you, God can use you because you'll bring him honor. Some of you, you've disqualified yourself by doing things that you shouldn't be doing, and you've sacrificed being used by God for the temporary pleasure of pleasing yourself. He's saying, but you know what? (laughs) Therefore, if a man cleanses himself... If God's saying, hey, you know what, Chuck, there's an area in your life, you better cleanse yourself, you better clean it up. You better clean up your act in that area because if you don't do it, I will step in and do it for you. you ever, hey, you ever have a kid and you say, clean up your room? And they look at you like, it looks clean to me. You say, well, see, we got a different standard here, don't we? And since we're the boss, our standard counts, yours doesn't. And God's saying, since I'm the boss, my standard counts yours doesn't. So here's the standard. All right, you either clean your room or we'll help clean it for you. Any moms ever go berserk and do the old dump in the dresser drawers in the middle of the room? Anybody? Anybody? Anybody want to own up to it? I own up to it. I don't have a problem with that. Hey, you know what? You just take and you just dump everything in the middle of the floor. You take everything out of the closet. You throw it in the middle of the floor and say, okay, now let's go put it all away. Ooh. It works, doesn't it? See, what God's saying is, I'm going to dump your dirty drawers out so everybody can see it in the middle of your room. So either clean up your own room, or I'm going to step in and clean it up for you. Hey, I understand that. I understand what he's saying, right? He says, so clean yourself up. 
Now, therefore, if a man cleans himself up from these things, he'll be a vessel for honor. He'll be sanctified, set apart. He'll be useful to his master. He'll be prepared for every good work. God can use you again. It's like that young lady that was a teacher at a Christian school, living with her boyfriend, having sex outside of marriage, having, own, having a child and everything that goes with it, trying to go to a Christian school and teach God's principles. It was killing her. It was killing her. And God said, hey, I know what's going on in your life. You know what's going on in your life. Clean yourself up. Clean it up before it's exposed to everybody. Clean it up before I let everybody know what a hypocrite you are. Clean it up before you lose your job and your credibility. Clean it up, buddy. Hey, pastor, I know what's going on in your heart. I know what's going on in your life. You stop doing it and clean it up before I expose it so everybody will know about it. And once you clean it up, then you'll be set aside. You'll be sanctified. I can use you again. You'll be useful for my purposes. I'll equip you to do good work. I'm not going to hold it against you because I know you're all like sheep. You've all gone astray. You're all messed up. I know that. All I'm trying to do is reveal to you what's going on in your heart right now and deal with it today. See, God isn't saying you can't ever be used again because you made a mistake. The only reason we can be used is because we have made mistakes and we can be used by God because we recognize what those mistakes are. And he says, flee from these things. Spiritual defeat. It's a mockery. When God's people profess one thing and do another thing, it's a mockery of everything that we say we believe. Listen to what happened to King David, 2 Samuel 12, 14. The prophet Nathan comes to him and speaks of the spiritual defeat, and God says this, However, because by this deed, what was the deed? Sexual misconduct. He committed adultery with another man's wife, and he also had that man murdered. Because of this deed, you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme me. You hear that? Because of what you've done, the people in your community are laughing and ridiculing me as if somehow it's my fault. And so I've got to teach you a lesson so that everybody knows that I don't have a tolerance for sin. Because of what pastors do in their community, it mocks the things of God. You've got a whole bunch of people that stand there and they criticize Christians and say, oh, look at this, there's another one. Preaching one thing, doing another thing. Preaching give, 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 and stealing from you and putting it all in their pocket and driving their Rolls Royce home. People aren't stupid. They see what we do. Live what you say you believe. And there's credibility there. Oh, this broke my heart when I read this in the paper. It drove me crazy. I couldn't believe it. Listen to this. This was about Sandy Patty, who was a Christian gospel singer, who had an affair with her business manager and ultimately divorced her husband and married this particular gentleman. This is the L.A. Times, and this is how the world sees these things. And I'm not, I'm not here to criticize or to condemn her. All I'm here to make a point is to say this. You know what? The world watches us. We're supposed to be light. We're supposed to be salt. We're supposed to be the representatives or ambassadors of Christ. We make a claim that, hey, I believed in Jesus Christ. He's freed me from my sin. He's freed you from your sin. Then why are you still living in it? And what happens is, here's the, here's the quote. It was in the L.A. Times regarding this. They explained how she had gotten an affair. They explained how she got divorced, how she left her husband, and now she married this business manager. This is what she said. These actions have delayed, have delayed the release of her upcoming Christmas CD, Oh, Holy Night. End of paragraph. You feel it? Oh, I felt it. And rightfully so. How stupid we are that we think that we can do what God says is an abomination before him. We can't mock God without paying a price. See, I urge you, I beg you, don't you see the emotional distress that will come in your life? Don't you see the risk of physical disease and defilement that's going to happen? Don't you see the difficulties that you'll ever have one day if you're married and if you are married or if you'll ever be married? Don't you see as a Christian the spiritual defeat that's coming to your life because you have chosen to please yourself on a temporary basis at the expense of what God says is more valuable? Don't you see? See, with the spirit of gentleness and confrontation, you can come to a person and say, don't you see what's going to happen to you? The third principle is this, the principle of refusing to tolerate or accept or condone behavior that God says is wrong. The one gentleman that I'm dealing with now that says, hey, you know what, my wife just needs to mind her own business. You know, I still come home to her. The counsel that she's getting from her friends and family is, hey, you know what, don't make waves. 
You know, it's just, it's a problem that he has in his life, but you know what, at least he's coming home to you. He's coming home to you, and you know, he's still paying the bills, and he's still taking care of the kids, and hey, you know what, don't make waves. And it's easy to fall into that, and to recognize that. It's easy to tolerate that type of behavior. It's easy to accept it or condone it. Why? Because it's a lot easier to accept it than it is to confront it. Hey, it's the 90s, man. You know, single people live together now. That's the way it is, mom, dad. You know, grow up. Grow up. Don't grow old. You need to understand that. Hey, homosexuality. You don't understand. We're born this way. That's the way that it is. You have to accept that. You have to tolerate that. You have to condone that. You need to include us. Hey, people have affairs. That's the way it is. 50% of people have affairs. I mean, that's life. You know, sometimes you can't always meet your spouse's needs. Hey, you need to accept that. You need to tolerate that. You need to condone that. That's the kind of logic that we hear around us. The problem is God says you don't accept it. You don't tolerate it. And you don't condone it if you care about that person. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 13, for some great insight on how to deal with it. This is a, it's like a, a, an MBA class. This is a case study. 1 Corinthians 5, case study. I love this. Because he's saying, that, hey, here's a real-life situation. You know, sometimes we need real-life situations so that we know what the heck's going on so we can apply some of these principles. But he's saying, hey, in 1 Corinthians 5, it says, it's actually reported that there is sexual misconduct or immorality among you and such behavior that even the Gentiles don't do. Even non-believers aren't doing this. What is it? Well, there's someone in your congregation that is having sexual relationships with his father's wife. Obviously, it's not his mother, or it would have been read out as his mother. So it was his father had gotten remarried subsequent to his birth, and this guy was having sex with his stepmother. And everybody knew about it in the church. There wasn't anything hidden about it. It's, it's been reported. We all know about it. Everybody knows about it. This guy's having sex with his stepmother. It says, and you have become arrogant. And you have not mourned instead in order that the one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. You see what he's saying? You've become arrogant. See, here's the way that, here's the way that I see things in life. Most of us fall on one side of the pendulum or the other. We're always people of extreme. There's this group that's over here that says, hey, you know what? We're all under grace. That stuff happens. Who are we to condemn them? Who are we to judge them? Let's go eat. You know? And aren't we gracious because we're under grace and we're tolerating this type of thing? Gosh, aren't we, aren't we wonderful? God said, no, you're not being wonderful, you're being arrogant. Then there are those on the other side of the pendulum, the pendulum that say, hey, crucify him. Let's kill him. That'll put an end to this right now. Bring him up here right now, and I'll throw the first stone. I like this, let's kill him. So somewhere in the middle is the right response is what I'm trying to get across. And so he's saying that, For I on the part, though absent my body, but present in spirit, have already judged him and have, committed, and have so committed this, as though I am present in the name of our Lord when you're assembled, and I, you in spirit, with the power of Christ, I've decided to deliver such a, a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting's not good. To boast that, hey, look, aren't we tolerant people? Aren't we gracious people? Hey, look, Lord, I accept my homosexual son or daughter. I accept my homosexual friend. I accept homosexuals. I accept adulterers. I accept single friends that are having sex outside of marriage. I accept my daughter who wants to come home and have sex, you know, with, with her boyfriend in our house. I accept that. I'm tolerating that. Aren't I a tolerating and loving individual? And God says, no, you're arrogant. And he's saying, who are you? to tolerate that which I do not condone. Who do you think you are that you can tell them that that's right when I say that it's wrong? Listen to what he's saying. Mom and dad, if you have a child that has, that's trying to live in sexual misconduct, listen to me. Your acceptance of their behavior is never going to change the fact that God says the behavior is wrong. Our acceptance of an, of, as a nation of groups of people that want us to accept homosexuality as an alternative lifestyle. Our acceptance, we can, every one of us can say, let's tolerate that behavior, let's be more loving and not as condemning and not as critical. ...and spirit and we're meek. See, every one of us can say that's okay. But God can say, I don't care if y'all say it's okay, it's still wrong. 
See, our problem is that not many of us mourn over sin anymore. They, didn't, they weren't mourning over sin. They weren't broken over what was going on. We don't mourn over sin anymore. You know what I find? We mourn more over an investment that goes wrong. We mourn more over not getting a promotion we should have got or a raise that we should have had. We mourn more over the fact our real estate values have gone down. We mourn over the recession. We mourn over everything but sin anymore in our culture. When was the last time you were broken over the sin of another person? Instead of being condemning and judgmental and critical, to be gentle and say, gosh, you know what, this is breaking my heart that this person's caught up in homosexuality. This is breaking my heart that this person is having sex outside of marriage. This is breaking my heart that this marriage is being destroyed. I had a friend who went to a friend's house who had left his wife, was having an affair, and moved in with his girlfriend. He went to talk him out of what he was doing and to try to encourage him to go back to his wife and back to his children. He walked into what ended up being a one-bedroom apartment. All the glitter had gone off the relationship. All the newness of this newfound sexual activity had gone away. And he had walked into this apartment. And here was this man sitting there. It's one-bedroom apartment with a couch, a couple of other things. And, it, and his friend walked in. And he was going to talk him out of this relationship with this, with this woman. To go home and to make things right with his wife. To go home and to be there for his children. He wanted to talk him out of it. He walked in and he, and he looked around and he saw his friend and he saw the condition that he was in. And he just broke down and cried. He couldn't even talk to him. He couldn't say a word to him. He just broke down and cried. This man had left his wife of 25 years and all of his children and his home and his business and everything that he had worked hard for for years and he got caught up in sin and sin destroyed his life and his friend was standing there and he was looking at him, sitting there, broken, a broken man. And he just cried. And he just turned around and he walked out. A few days later, this man's wife called him says, I don't know what you told my husband, but whatever you said, he came home that very night and he asked me to forgive him and he asked me if we can go to counseling and he asked me to put our marriage back together. I don't know what you said, but whatever you said got through to him. He, he didn't say anything. He didn't have to say anything because he was so broken over sin. Not many of us are broken over sin anymore doesn't destroy our lives like it should. It was sin. Think about sin. Sin that sent Jesus Christ to the cross and the death that he paid for us. It was sin, original sin, that separated us from fellowship with God. It was sin that introduced heartache and suffering and tears and brokenness to the human condition. It was sin that did all of these things. And we laugh at it, we mock at it, we become arrogant, just like the Corinthians did. Aren't we accepting and tolerant and condoning of these things? And God says, I don't want you to accept it. I don't want you to tolerate it. I don't want you to condone it. I want you to hate it. Because it's killing you. It's destroying you. And he goes on and he says, that, you know what? That sin is like, 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 look, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Don't you know that a little tolerance of sin is what leads to more and more sin? It's like saying, tolerate a little bit of cancer in your life. Just tolerate that skin cancer. Don't worry about it. Ignore it. Say, that's good. That's okay. I can accept that. And then watch it eat the rest of your body away. You can't tolerate things that aren't content with remaining where they are. Sin wants to destroy. You can't tolerate sin within the body of Christ because it will destroy everything and everybody in it. No matter who's doing it, you've got to take a stand and say, listen, you either change your behavior or get out of here. You're malignant. You're destructive. You're sending out a counterproductive message. We can't have a, a dual hypocrisy where you have one standard and we have another. There's people watching. There's people listening. How are you going to handle this situation? God says, if they don't repent, get them out. Now, I know you're not going to want to hear this. You got a son or daughter that wants to live outside of marriage and have sex and wants you to accept it? <laughs> sorry, you can't do it. God doesn't do it. How can you? I'm sorry. I can't accept that. I can't condone it because it's destroying you. And I don't want to give you any false hope that somehow you can do something that God says is wrong. And I'm going to make you a choice right now. It's either him or her or it's us. But until you stop that behavior, we can't have anything to do with you. Wow. Wow. It's radical. 
No, it's biblical. And the whole purpose of it is, is it to bring them about to see how wrong their behavior is. They have to make tough choices. Do I want to do what's right, or do I want to do what is pleasing to me? That's tough stuff, isn't it? I'm sorry. I'm not going to allow you to bring your homosexual lover to our house. I'm not going to allow you to advocate that openly and expect us to accept it. It's wrong. It's destroying you. I love you. I'm concerned for you. We'll do whatever we can to help you, but we're not going to accept it. We're not going to tolerate it. We're not going to condone it. You've got some tough decisions to make. Is it going to be us or him, us or her? It's your decision. Man, can you imagine for a moment applying that same standard to the church? Well, we've got a whole bunch of people that are useful for God's purposes and a whole bunch of people who aren't because you're spiritually defeated by what's going on in your life. And if God exposed that, and that's the problem. If God exposes it, then we need to deal with it. If God exposes it publicly, it needs to be dealt with publicly. That's the problem of public sin. We need to recognize that. You cannot refuse and to- you cannot tolerate, accept, or condone behavior that God says is unacceptable. It will never change the behavior. Number four, the fourth principle is this. We need to rebuke a sinning believer in love. What does that mean? Just like I said, we love you, we care for you, we're not being critical, we're not being judgmental, but by the grace of God, we could just as easily get caught up in what you're doing. But we love you, and we want you to see from God's word, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for what? For teaching, for rebuke, for correction, and for training in righteousness. See, this isn't my opinion versus your opinion. This isn't, I don't like your boyfriend, I don't like your girlfriend. You know, it it has nothing to do with whether you like them or you don't like them. It has to do with their behavior. It's not whether you like the way they dress or they don't, the way they don't dress. It's not whether you like whether they have earrings or not earrings. It's not any of those things. Those are the things we talk about in our grace series. Those are the things we need to learn to disagree agreeably. What we're talking about here is specifically behavior that is contrary to what God says is right or wrong. It's not the music they listen to. It's none of those things. It's behavior. And to show them in Scripture, patiently, gently instructing them that, hey, adultery is wrong. Homosexuality is wrong. Sex outside of marriage is wrong. Because God says it, not because we feel that way or whether we do or don't, that's not the issue. But if God says it, we believe it, and we're going to encourage you to live by it. We do. We would hope that you would. But we need to rebuke people in love. And then the last thing is this, the, the fifth principle. And this is really important, too, because, see, what happens is we fall into one of those extremes or the other, and there's people that when a person says, I'm sorry, when a person says, forgive me, when a person says, hey, you know what, I, I made a mistake, we need to be willing immediately to respond with love and forgiveness. There's two problems. One is cheap confessions which I talked a little bit about, and that is, oh, honey, I made a mistake. Will you forgive me? And you try to talk yourself out of something you behaved yourself into. Well, you know what? Confession is cheap. And and see, when we wrestled and struggled with all that, even in dealing in the situation here at Calvary, what does it mean to confess? What does it mean to repent? What does it mean to restore someone? What's the period of time that it takes? How do you do all these things? Those are difficult things. But one thing that I know for sure is this. When a person is sincere about their confession, it means that they openly agree that what they were doing is wrong. I'll give you an example. This, this woman that I'm dealing with, whose husband is having sex with other women and want, wants her to get off his back, what she's saying is this. I, I'd, I'd, readily, I'd readily forgive him. I'd readily want to work out our marriage and go to counseling and stuff, but he will not even admit to me, he will not even agree with me that what he's doing is wrong. You follow that? There's nothing wrong with this, is what he's trying to say. And she's saying that if he would just say, first, I made a big mistake. What I'm doing is wrong. Then she said we'd have some hope, and she's right. Then there's some hope of recovery. Then there's some hope of restoration. But if you're going to say and adamantly say there's nothing wrong with sex outside of marriage, there's nothing wrong with homosexuality, there's nothing wrong with you know, all of these things, hey, you know what? That's not confession. Confession is agreeing with God that what God says is right and changing your mind and your heart about something that you were so convinced was otherwise. It's saying, yes, that is wrong. And I recognize that it's wrong. God, forgive me for what I'm doing. Forgive me for what I did to you. Now we need to work this thing out together. That's the one side of it. The other side of it is this. I'm dealing with people all the time that won't forgive the other person. 
Yes, I admitted that it's wrong. Yes, I want to go to counseling. Yes, I will be accountable. Yes, I know that I violated your trust. And I'm going to do everything that I can to make you realize that I learned my, mis- I learned my lesson. I've learned from my mistake. Would you please forgive me? And they won't forgive. That's what happened to this guy in Corinth. Paul said, hey, get him out of your midst if he's not going to confess. You know what the guy did? They said, you're going to have to leave. And he said, why? Because you're doing this and it's wrong before God. You need to stop this behavior. You know what the guy did? He said, I'm sorry. I didn't know that that was wrong. Thank you for pointing it out to me. And I'm sorry, God, I'm sorry that I was having sex with my stepmother. I didn't realize that that was wrong. And please forgive me. And you know what the church did? Did they embrace him and they hug him and they forgive him and say, hey, listen, you know what? We're all in this thing together. You know what they did? They kicked him out anyway. And not only did they kick him out anyway, they kept telling people, don't ever talk to that guy again. So he had to write 2 Corinthians, a little follow-up letter. Oh, okay, hey, hang on a second. Let me explain something to you. The guy asked for forgiveness. Would you please forgive him? It's okay now. What he did was wrong. He admitted it was wrong. He's repented from it. He's not doing... Oh, by the way, that means you don't do it. You follow me? Repentance is real important. Yes, I had an affair with someone else. Yes, I I know that was wrong. And you know what? I'm not going to do it anymore. I, I, I stopped it. I cut off the relationship. I'm not doing it anymore. Uh, yes, I was having sex outside of marriage when I was single, but I realized that it was wrong and that I've been defeated by it spiritually and it's been destroying my life in many other ways. And yes, I know that it was wrong and I've stopped doing it and I'm not doing it anymore. Yes, I know homosexuality is wrong now and I agree with God that what he's saying is right and it's destroyed my life in so many ways and I see that now for the first time. And God, please forgive me for that. And you know what? Oh, by the way, I've cut off that relationship or relationships. I'm not doing that anymore. Then you hug that person, you embrace that person, you say, praise God that he was able to free you from that behavior. And thank God for that. But some of us don't want to let go. I'm dealing with a wife now, and I'm trying to help her to see it, and you know what the problem is? She wants to use it for the rest of her life to manipulate and to control her husband who was guilty of having an affair. Take me here, take me there. I'm not sure I'm committed to the marriage. I'm not sure how long I'm going to be committed. I don't know if this is really going to last. Jump through some more hoops so I can just rub it in your face. There's many of us like that, aren't there? Same thing with our children. They make a mistake. What do you do, folks? You don't let it go. You don't embrace them. You don't hug them. You don't respond with restoration. What you do is you make sure they never forget what they did. And you keep rubbing it in their face. And you keep grinding their nose in it to the point where you don't have a relationship anymore because all you want to do is keep grinding it in their face. We've all made mistakes. Thank God that he isn't always rubbing our nose in it. Thank God he's not saying, Chuck, remember you did in 1974? I said, I can't even remember 1974. There was lava lamps and stuff like that, and I know I had, you know, bell bottoms and leisure suit and the puka beads and stuff, I know, but that's all I can remember. Well, I know what you did, and I'm going to rub in your face forever. Thank God he forgives us, and he restores us, and we can move on. If you want any hope for your your relationship in your marriage or with your children or with friends or anybody else, when they make a mistake and they admit that they did, can you forgive them and can you let it go and can you move on? Man. Let me close with a true story. See if you don't appreciate this. I like this story. Oh, there's two stories. Do we have time for two? Okay, that's two stories. The one is, maybe not so true, the next one will be true. (laughs) Well, you be the judge. First story, Jesus walks into a bar. (laughs) That could be true. You know, he walks into a bar. Well, hey, you know what? See, people go, oh, Jesus would never walk into a bar. Hey, he was always accused of hanging around sinners and tax gatherers and stuff. He could walk into a bar, but the difference was he didn't sin when he was in there. Anyway, Jesus walks into a bar. He's at the end of the bar, and there's three guys sitting at the other end of the bar. And so Jesus was walking up to the bar, and these three guys at the other end said, Gee, that looks like Jesus. I said, um, Jesus, would you like a drink? He said, Sure, I'll have a 7-Up. So they buy him a 7-Up. So Jesus drinks a 7-Up, and he comes down to the end of the bar, and he goes over to the first guy and says, I want to thank you for buying me that 7-Up. So he puts his hand on his shoulder, and the guy goes, Oh, that's amazing. I haven't been able to move this shoulder in years. I've had bad arthritis. I haven't been able to... Look at this. Whoa. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. He said, that's quite all right. Thanks for buying me the 7-Up. Goes to the next guy. Puts his hand on his back. 
the guy jumps up. I can't believe this. My back, I've had a bad back for oh, gee, years now. This is unbelievable. He starts doing some gym, jumping up and down. He's going crazy. This is great. He says, thanks for buying me a 7-Up. He goes to the last guy at the end of the bar and he goes to touch him. And the guy goes, don't touch me. I'm on disability. <laughs> anyway. Okay. What? Now some of you are thinking, okay, what's the point? Well, the point is simple. Some of us don't want help. Some of us don't want help. And we need to understand that. There are going to be people that you go to and you confront in gentleness and with love and you show them what they're doing is wrong. But they don't want help. And they're going to continue to do what they're doing. But you know what? Some of us are going to be used by God to go to a person that's doing wrong before God. And we're going to be an instrument of God to restore them back into fellowship with God. And if any of you, a brother that strays away and you come and restore him, then you've saved a brother from a multitude of sin. You know, thank God for the opportunity to be able to confront people who are struggling with different areas of their life. Now the true story. Tony and Francis Toto made People Magazine with their story of the bitter fruits of conflict in their marriage. 1984, Toto, in Allentown, Pennsylvania, he's a pizza parlor, er, pizza parlor owner, survived several attempts on his life by assailants who did everything from hitting him on the head with a baseball bat to shooting him on two different occasions while he slept. The person behind all of this was his wife. She hired the hitman to do the job. The first time Tony was shot, he was hit in the head, but he lived. The second time they shot him in the chest, but somehow he survived that too. What was the source of their conflict? Well, apparently Tony was what they call a ladies' man, and his wife decided to do a little straying herself. Amazingly, when Tony discovered that Francis and her lover were behind the attempts on his life, he forgave his wife, paid her attorney's fees, and even visited her regularly in prison after she was convicted of solicitation for murder. Four years later, Francis was released from prison, welcomed back home by her husband Tony and their four children. According to Tony, they are more in love now than they ever were before. This is his quote, I'm in one piece and I'm still laughing. I think if you find the right person, you have to stick to it and work it out. I don't understand why people break up over every little silly thing. (laughs) And I I don't understand it either. Let's close. Father, thanks for this time to be together. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for just the, the direction and the standard to live our lives by God. We're just so grateful that we don't live by our own feelings and our own sense of what we think is right or wrong, but we have a greater standard, and that's yours. God, we just thank you that that standard protects us from so many pitfalls in this life. We just pray that we'll be sensitive to your word and we'll be sensitive to those who are struggling in any area of life, that you can use us in a way that would restore them and to, and to bring them back into fellowship. God, I just pray right now for those of us who have been hurt by others, that somehow we can forgive and that we can forget and that we can restore and move on. And As silly as that last true story is, God help us to see how many of us get so upset over the silliest little things. God help us to understand what it means to forgive 70 times 7. And we just thank you that you can restore and do wonderfully amazing things. And we'll just praise you for it in Christ's name. Amen.